Mate, this is going to be awesome. It's not stayed to come down this at all. Hit him, hit him. It's more than just a hobby, it's who we are. Cracker. That's why we hunt. Welcome to the Educated Hunter Podcast. This week's episode of The Educated Hunter is brought to you by nobody. Enjoy it. It's free. Cheers. G'day and welcome to this week's episode of The Educated Hunter. This week I had a conversation with a guy called Ryan O'Connor. Ryan has his own podcast called The Stag Roar. He reached out to me on Instagram. We decided we were going to have a bit of a chat and see where it went. Ryan ended up asking most of the questions, to be honest, and got me chatting about sort of the general political landscape of hunting in New Zealand, where we, where I think it might go in the future, and asks a few questions that uh, have got a little bit of controversy surrounding them at times. I offer my opinion, and just to reiterate, it's my opinion only, but it ended up being quite a good and in-depth chat about sort of the state of hunting and, and where I think it's going to go in the future. Uh, he has already released this audio under his podcast, so if you're a listener of of his podcast, The Stag Roar, then you may already have listened to this, so apologies, you'll have to wait till next week. Um, but other than that, I think it's a relatively good chat, and I hope you enjoy it. And one other note, Tim Jones, if you're listening, sitting on your digger, g'day mate, thanks for listening, keep up the good work. Kia ora everybody, uh, I'm sitting here with Matt Gibson from Ultimate OE. It's something that, as a university student, I was like, hell yeah, let's do that. But then <laughs> life happens, and I'm still yet to do that. And now with the young child, I don't know if that'll be something that'll be on the list anymore. Um, yeah, we, we tend to have a little bit of a window. <laughs> <laughs> um, and ironically, your podcast, The Educated Hunter, comes out of New Zealand, and me, the stag roar, having been based in Australia the last year, has come out of Australia, yet I'm in New Zealand right now and you're over the other side of the world in Vancouver. Before we get into how all that comes about, I always start my podcast with what did you do in the weekend, Matt? And then being a crossover podcast, we'll go ahead with your lead-in question. So what did you yeah. do in the weekend, mate? Uh, last weekend, it's a good question actually. <laughs> I bet you get some interesting answers. Uh, last weekend, I was at an Irishman's 30th and. Big White, which is the ski field about an hour out of Kelowna, BC. So we had a, well, there would have been 10 of us. Um, me and my partner Anna were the only two Kiwis. The rest were all Irish. Um, there might have been a token Canadian, as it sometimes happens in that situation, but most of them were raging Irishmen um, up on the ski and ski out chalet on, in Big White. So, yeah, spent the weekend skiing. and Lovely. And was your um, amazing guest... Alan Kenny was he there or was that his stag do? Yeah, it was actually. It was not his stag do. It was his thirtieth. So, yeah. So Alan, yeah, you're probably referring to the podcast I did with him a few months back. Um, yeah, Alan is a is new to hunting. He's he's what I've I've started to call the hipster hunter crowd. So guys that are um, have have got no background and girls for that matter, no background in hunting that um, have sort of. To be fair, this this podcast medium has probably got a little bit of accountability in terms of spreading the word and, and getting people to sort of understand a little bit more of the broader 
um, ideas and um, sort of the mentality behind sort of ethical and legal hunting. Mm. Um, and he's one of these guys that once he figured out that I was a hunter, he came to me and said, look, man, I really want to want to see what it's all about. And to his credit, he went away and, and did all the necessary paperwork and got the necessary licenses. So, yeah, took him away on his first hunt this past season. And this year he's rearing to go, boy. He's uh, got like three or four hunts booked in with me. <laughs> I don't know if I'm going to have any time to hunt for myself. Nice. And the... Um... The slogan that's on your hat this probably plays a big part in, in the responsibility for the hipster hunter movement. <laughs> what had him? Oh, I'm wearing the Cam Haynes hat. Yeah, I am. Yeah, no, he's another guy that um, has got some very strong core values and and pretty strong ideas when it comes to hunting and, and promotes a, a, a really positive version of hunting and sort of through that whole Joe Rogan machine has become very, very popular. But to be fair, before that, he was popular in his own right. He spent a lot of time sort of pushing his brand and his way of doing things before he ever met Joe. It was just that little push that put him into the stratosphere, really. I guess the question is, why did you call it the Stag Raw Podcast and, and what is it about exactly? Lovely. So I definitely fit into the hipster hunting realm. Um, <laughs> Good. Despite despite growing up in Invercargill, we're we're privy to some of the greatest, you know, public land areas and, and, and private areas. I never went hunting. I never did the great walks, and I'm, and I'm quite ashamed of that now. Um, and it wasn't it wasn't till I guess the end of high school, but too busy too busy playing sport that I sort of thought, hey, this deer industry and this hunting industry is hugely fascinating, and it started to create a little bit of a niche for me. And through uni and things like that. Um, I just kept following it, would buy the odd hunting magazine on the plane. And then, I don't know, I think Southland Stags as well sort of drove drove another little bit of passion around what, what are these deer like? And, and I've got this huge passion for deer farming as well. So it all, all comes together. And then we amazingly managed to tip Canterbury up in a 9-3 rugby game in, in Christchurch. And everybody from Southland all of a sudden became so-and-so stag so-and-so on their Facebook and I consequently moved, moved to Auckland and playing rugby, you know, people could never seem to say hard names like Ryan and so nicknames fall into place and I, I became stag and so, yeah, the the podcast, you know, stag raw is a, is a loud thing, you know, it's it's letting, letting the people know that you're, you're ready and get, get out of my territory but the whole thing around the stag raw is to tr- try, I guess, capture the, the same sort of people of, of the level that I'm at there, sort of 25 to 35, 20 to 35, starting to sort of try and figure out who they are as a person. And then the sort of content behind the podcast is about mostly about health. And what I sort of believe is that the closer you are to your food, the healthier you are. So um, I've had plenty of people that come from a, a real sort of lower carbohydrate, whole food, background coming in and talk um we're, we're looking at talking to a, a guy in the uk who's you know a keen spear fisherman he's a, he's a keen hunter which is difficult in the uk but then he's also a, a gymnast um we've had keegan smith on who's who's you know trained trained the sydney roosters to championships um he's gone all around the world coaching people in strength and conditioning but now himself has moved into a farm area we had another guy who's you know, loves traveling around in the outback 
loves doing trad bow hunting and he's found that the combination of those two, you know, real raw lifestyles and hunting and eating meat has meant that his thyroid disease has turned around. So hmm. I'd, I'd love, and, and that's why I resonate so well with you guys' podcast, I'd love for the story of hunting to not be this grip and grin carry on. And, and you know, I'm on the, not to call them out, but the, the Venison Hunters Facebook page, you know, I'd, I'd love for it not to be about people getting up uproar and showing how many animals they knocked off but really going deeper into you know this is the animal this is what i'm doing with the animal hey i might even get the pelt out you know i've got beautiful red skin um rolled up in the in the ceiling for when we come back to new zealand but you know there's so much more to hunting than just going out and shooting an animal to put a doing it for the gram is is, is the common thing is and that's what i love about about the podcast from you guys is hey you guys are doing something really special in, in creating a real true narrative about hunting and <clears throat> As I said, back to university, going on an OE as a as a um, outfitter just was I thought was so cool. But <laughs> well, we can talk about the OE stuff <laughs> a bit later. But I mean, just touching on a few of the points you've made there, it's it's nice that that's what you're getting out of our podcast. It's what we try and are trying to do, and it's become pretty obvious to me over time that not one podcast or one voice is going to change some of the negative or misinterpreted narratives around hunting it's it sort of falls on all of our shoulders as hunters those that do it um, for the right reasons with the right code of ethics to all sort of stand up and say this is how I do it and this is why I do it Um, and realizing that everybody's not the same like we all have different motivations for why we get out on the hill Um, I think it's a like you say hunting being on the hill gathering hunting and gathering your own food is, is a very healthy lifestyle. You can't do that correctly without being healthy to some extent if you're doing it of, um, doing it often. So there's that side of things. I mean, to touch on like the, the whole grip and grin, doing it for the gram, Facebook stuff, I mean, humans are humans, right? We've all got egos. And I think one of the biggest challenges we have, particularly with with hunters, is, is ego. Um and it comes down to a lot of the time of, of why you're posting photos. And it, it is a sense of achievement a lot of times. Um, but at the same time, we have to admit that if you posted a photo on a public forum, I mean, you're going to be looking at the comments and you're going to be looking at the likes just because it feels good. We have to admit it, it feels good. And I'm just as guilty of doing it as the next person. But I think from a hunting perspective, because it is such a... Um, a social hot potato at the moment and people who don't hunt or don't have a background in hunting can so easily see those images and take it the wrong way i mean i've said it on our podcast and and other podcasts i've done it's it's very much like when you post a grip and grin photo of a of a dead animal sitting behind it with a big smile on his face on your face you know as hunters we get that we understand why you're happy non-hunters don't get that that's like showing somebody the last chapter of a book you know, they don't have the context of you reading the 50 chapters beforehand and the journey you've been on to get to that point. It's like, you know, putting climbing Everest down to the last step you take onto the summit. We all know it's not just that last step, as good as that must feel. Um, there's a lot of pre-work and a lot of steps that have gone on before that, which makes that last step 
such an achievement and I think that's what's missing out of a lot of our hunting narrative a long time a lot of the time is the build-up to that achievement that build up to that moment and that's why we've got a big shit eating grin on our face you know when we're sitting behind something we're genuinely proud of and there's nothing wrong with that all it comes down to is understanding that if we just put that last page in front of people who haven't read the book ever or have never read before for that you know for that matter you know reading being hunting then we can't expect them to understand why we're sitting there and and with a big grin on our face and they're going to draw a natural conclusion which is you know you're happy that that thing is dead which is not necessarily the case mm-hmm. no and I'd, I'd recently had Clive Renew on on the podcast who again is a trad bow hunter and she recently went out and, and got her first series of goats and it was the same same thing you know she posted the goats and she's going to a, to a hunting expo in Australia and people were saying, oh, she's, you know, she's been goat hunting for two weeks, but no, she's been trying to refine a bow for over a year, every day, hours and hours, so that she can then go out and, you know, somewhat relatively, in some people's opinion, easy species to hunt. But when you're in a dry and, and um, barren Australian outback, where there's you know dogs and all sorts of predators around. Hey, you know those animals are equally going to be on edge. So, you know, like I say, it's it's not that. Hey, look at Kai, she's got a got a goat. Oh, that that was easy. No, it's taken her a, a year's amount of work, and and then like she said, twenty years of, of survival experience being being in you know all sorts of situations to and be able a hard to feel confident to, to go out and do that. To say in a picture, you can't you can't explain that in a photo, right? So it, it is a real challenge particularly when people are sharing photos purely just out of ego look what i did and i think it's 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 a combination of people that are just getting into hunting and they need some um sort of some reassurance that they're doing it right or they want some social recognition that the the delivery but know the achievements they've had or you know where they've got at this point and that's fine i get that it's just coming back to being intelligent about where we share it and how we share it um so yeah it's it's a it's a it's a different beast these days when it comes to social media and, and hunting and all that kind of stuff, but yeah, to dial it all the way back, I'm, I'm glad that you are getting benefit out of the Educated Hunter podcast, or at least um, enjoying the fact that we are trying to push that general narrative behind hunting and get people thinking about you know why we do what we do. Mm. Yeah, and as I, as I said in the emails, this is probably the case of the educated versus, versus the uneducated. I was probably saying myself a little bit short there because I've been trying for many years and it's started off like a needle in a haystack and ever so slowly those needles start to get bigger and brighter and, and you know, you add torches and they start to reflect a bit better and maybe, maybe a magnet or two. And so it's gone from trying not to get lost in, in the likes of the Kaimais or, or Tutapui, which is a tiny bush block, to actually stumbling across animals and then you know it, it's it's such a humbling experience being out in the bush not only do you have to continue with climbing and bush and all that sort of stuff but then to actually try to figure out where you are where the animals are and are you on the right track is you know the uh the failure rate is fast but then the the rewards and and the sort of small small things i guess it's like golf you can just do one shot and and feel great you know you can find one animal and go, hey, I'm doing something right, or find one scrape pad and go, hey, I'm doing something right, this is where they should be. Um, how, how was your sort of learning curve 
to hunting? Was it something that you're brought up with, or, or something that you had a good mentor through? Or yep, I uh, I started pretty early. My my father was an avid hunter. Um, funnily enough, his father wasn't, so he came into it relatively late. Um, but once he was into it, he really um, knuckled down, and I picked it up basically from the moment I could walk. I was a, you know, I was eeling, building bow and arrows out of bits of super jack, you know, um, causing havoc amongst the local rib, possum and rabbit um, population probably a little bit before my time really um, and probably a little bit before I should have been in reality. So for me, hunting has always been there. It's meant different things at different times in my life. Um, it's sort of one thing that I talk about a lot with a bunch of my hunting mates and guys that I hunt with and, and have um, lots of contact within the industry is is everybody's sort of natural evolution as a hunter from where we start and why we do things and how that changes over time. So my progression was, you know, recreational, doing it with my father, then very much on the subsistence side when, you know, I was at university and, and hungry. Um, and then from there, it went into a completely different realm once I started doing it professionally. So once I discovered guiding and guiding as a vehicle to sort of um, help people realize their dreams, I mean, dreams is pretty cliche and, and sounds a bit weird when you say it, but help people achieve their goals is probably a better um, description of it. And seeing people go through, you know, mental and physical hardship in the short term, come through the other side of it and achieve or not achieve what they want to do. Being part of those sort of 10 to 14 day journeys um, for a, a large volume of people became quite a, became a drug for me. It still is. It's part of the reason why I, I, I don't think I can ever quit guiding. I, I love the feeling of um, facilitating that experience for people. So throughout the professional side of things, um, it sort of changed my perspective in the fact that it's not all about um, what became less about pulling the trigger for me and more about the um, the journey that, that hunting can be. So I find myself, as I get older, I keep pushing the goalposts further back so I have to hunt more, if that makes sense. And I do that through a number of different ways. I mean, I set my – while I'm here in Canada, I'm a, I'm a permanent resident of Canada, so thankfully I can hunt in British Columbia – um, and there's not a whole lot of stuff, you know, you've got a pretty limited window on when you can hunt and there are restrictions on what animals you can shoot. So I set my goalposts really, really high or far back knowing that I'm going to get to new, do more hunting. And the result generally is I don't harvest an animal at the end of the season, but I still enjoy that process. Um, I've picked up a bow in the last sort of five years, um, have thoroughly enjoyed that challenge. Um, you know, shooting a bow for me is my kind of hunting slash man version of meditation. It's very hard to have anything else in your brain going on when you're trying to shoot a bow. If you do, you're going to stuff it up. So you become quite good at clearing your mind and um, that sort of very pure um, motor process uh, is, I find, very beneficial. So, you know, and everybody's different right you see progressions of people that have gone through that hunting thing and it was all about you know 
just getting an animal and then it becomes about getting a bigger animal and then it becomes less about getting an animal and more about getting photos or you know in my case guiding and other people's experiences so it's everybody goes through that pro- progression so I think that one of the things that um, that comes out of all of that that big dose of verbal diarrhea is I think I've become quite empathetic with every kind of hunter and everybody that you run into particularly on social media because you know that they're at a different stage in their journey right now you know we deal with a huge number or a decent number of young kiwi hunters who we bring into the ultimate oe program we spend 10 days with them training before they go to canada and they come into the program with a pretty strong hunting foundation but they are all at slightly different um, stages of their hunting journey and we know that once they've gone through our training, gone to Canada and had a, you know, an experience in the mountains of Canada hunting moose on horseback or going to Scotland and, and working as a ghillie and a, as a deer color, when they come back to New Zealand, they're going to be, you know, they would have leveled up a number of times in terms of their hunting narrative. So having empathy for everybody who hunts and the reason they hunt, even if they haven't quite got down to that level of being able to articulate what makes them what their why is and why they go out and hunt that's fine and everybody's everybody's different so where you draw your line in the sand is different so as hunters i think we need to be empathetic with other hunters too and just understand that everybody's at a different spot and everybody's got a different motivation and everybody i guess justifies going out into the mountains looking for something to harvest um for different reasons Absolutely, and I think that's that uh, that level of where you're coming at to it is something that's really good. You know, I've been in Australia now for nine months, and, and probably if I moved to the Hunter Valley, my, my outlook would have been different. But I've, I'm in the Byron Bay area, which is you know there's Krishna and, and Seventh Day Adventist base there, and there's there's vegan everything. But on the flip side, there's there's the farm, and and there's Brooklet Springs doing you know amazing permaculture chickens and Nimbo, you know the it gets a bad rap for being a weed capital, but also got these these amazing um, wagyu beef that they, that they push out on social media. So it's a real um, at odds part of part of Australia where there's this massive agriculture base, and, and then on the flip side there's this you know vegan and spiritual base, but um, a real lack, lack of hunting. But probably what I find really amazing about you know the, the likes of your, your podcast is that. It, if somebody's sort of thinking about hunting or, or exploring that that realm of do I go left and and you know not eat any animals or do I go right and and source you know my animals from as close as I can be, they they might stumble across your podcast and go well here's a level of, of ethics here's some considerations and and you said about you know ten days with you guys before somebody goes to Canada really level up that's what what really appealed to me about you guys, um, you know, set up is that I knew that 10 days there and then a, a year just watching and observing and, and, and helping these people was going to really level up. Do you think that, that your podcast is going to bring somebody into to a, to a higher level of, of consideration when they go out on the hill? Or is that the aim? <laughs> well, it's certainly the aim, whether it does that or not. I mean, from my perspective, if it, it does that for one person, then we've, you know, we've achieved something and that makes me happy um yeah it's a a funny thing and you you mentioned vegans and you 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 mentioned people who are you know ethically sourcing their meat and all that kind of stuff 
And the funny thing is everybody everybody wants to be part of a tribe, right? Everybody wants to be part of of something and have a have a belief system and then have people around them that believe the same thing. What the irony about it I find is that if you were to sit down someone who ethically sources their meat from an organic free range farming situation or even their vegetables or their eggs or whatever it might be you sat down a, a pure vegan um, you know not an extremist vegan not one that we shouldn't have pets and you know real scary vegan but you know you're just the average vegan and then you sat down a hunter you know particularly the guys that I associate with in the hunting industry and in the hunting world. If you set them all down in the same place, I I would say that ninety five percent of their core values would be the same. That's the irony of it, and yet we're always pitted against each other. Like when I go to a dinner party, like they're like, "This is this is Susan, and she's a vegan." Like, and then just wait for the reaction. You know, Matt hunts, and then expect us to just get into a fist fight. Like. The reality is I like sitting next to a vegan because they know their core values really well and they 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 know why they don't eat meat or animal products and they are you know in touch with their own core values enough to say and strong enough mentally to say look for this reason I'm no longer going to eat meat and a lot of the time when you sit down and talk to them it's because they've got a massive issue with with um, bulk farming with big commercial farming operations and how animals are treated on feedlots and in big battery hens and I I'm exactly the same I've got you know issues with the way that animals are treated in a commercial battery farming type scenario so once you get that out they're like oh okay so we're perfectly aligned there so that's why I don't eat meat and so I wouldn't eat meat but I can go out and harvest it in the wild, ethically free range, and I've made peace with the fact that I can pull the trigger because I eat meat. And once you get to that point, you're so closely aligned that you've probably got more in common than anyone else at the table because you're sitting across from someone who's eaten a sirloin steak that would not, you know, doesn't want to know where it's come from, doesn't want to know how the animal met its end, doesn't want to have any kind of responsibility or blood on their hands, but they still want to eat their steak. So, funnily enough, vegans and hunters often have a shitload in common. And um, the more irony to that is, is the sort of, in, I guess in New Zealand, this sort of green movement to get rid of our pests and, and have a vegetative and, um, you know, have birds and everything everywhere, you know, is, is actually about, you know, let's get rid of the pests and let's, return to, to nature and that's where I think a lot of hunters need to be careful on what, what they're saying around con- conservation and, and you've, you've had you know Jordan from Trap and Trigger on you know and he he's, sits on the fence there you know he's a recreational hunter and that's where he got started and he works works for Doc and not 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 to bash the, the venison hunter guys that there's a, there a bit of a hoo-ha about some culling done up in North Auckland you know plan to be done and again it's like well What's what's the plan? Where are people starting from? And you know, the ego comes in. Why do you, why do you feel so threatened? Yeah, I mean that's a it's a slippery slope, and unfortunately, I mean the whole doc and hunter relationship has got a shitload of history, like a shitload of history. So a lot of the people who are hunters and are hardline anti-doc have been burned some point in the past by doc or something that doc's done either directly or through perception 
right? So there's a lot of bad blood that's existed between Doc and Hunters, um, basically since it changed from Doc, well, from the Forest Service to Doc. So you're carrying, before a single thing is done, you're carrying a lot of baggage into that relationship, unfortunately. And that relationship goes both ways. Like the people who are lifetime forest and bird carry a lot of baggage or negative baggage against hunters and vice versa. And I had a chat with uh, Maya Rob the other day. Um, her podcast comes out this weekend. Um, and she's a she works for Doc. She does um, monitoring lines and bird counts for Doc. Uh, really interesting job. You'll enjoy that podcast. But at the same time, she's a avid hunter, pig hunter, big game hunter, alpine, solo hunter, like she's the real deal. And her and I had a really good conversation about this, and it's, again, it comes down, it's the whole hunter-vegan thing. If you sit down a hunter and a someone from forest, bird, forest and bird, I mean, if you ask them a question, do you want to see more native birds or less native birds in the bush? The answer to that question is going to be more native birds. It's like, okay, well, how do we achieve that? Well, how we achieve that is reducing predator numbers and managing game species. Right, the unfortunate reality is our minister of conservation right now, in my opinion, and this is only my opinion, and I don't know what everybody else thinks about this, but in my opinion, she sits more on the extremist side of things than the majority of the population. And the trouble is that the majority of the population in New Zealand don't, well, a lot of the population in New Zealand don't really know what to believe because Doc says one thing. You know, and some, you know, the hunters and the whatever say another thing, and then, you know, everybody gets confused about what the reality is. The reality is that if everybody sat down and, and figured it out, the middle line is, you know, reducing the numbers of introduced species like deer, goats, pigs, chamois, tar, keeping them at a level where they are manageable and not impacting negatively against our flora and fauna. And by doing that, uh, improving the environment, but also getting together as Kiwis and those who are recreational users of our public land together to manage things that we can all agree on that we don't want anymore. Rats, stoats, possums, wallabies, things like that. Um, again, it's all about compromise and having, you know, finding an even ground. But the trouble is, like I say, right now we've got somebody in a position of power being the conservation minister of new zealand the head of doc who is in my opinion an extremist because if she could and she said it publicly you can look her up on youtube saying this exact same thing if she could she would completely eliminate introduced animals from new zealand mm. i think that's an extremist view because that's as far as you can go to one end that's total elimination from everywhere period Okay. The other side of that is, say, like a hardcore anti-doc hunter saying we shouldn't do anything, there shouldn't be any poisoning, there shouldn't be any culling, there shouldn't be any management, we should just let everything run free and do their thing just so I don't have to walk very far to fill my freezer. That's the other end of the extremist level, right? Mm. And then there's all the rest of us that sit in the middle that don't really seem to have much of a voice or don't pipe up when we should. On saying that, do you think that... Uh... Overall, the hunting community did a good job of, of the Tarkal. I think it was really well facilitated by having that tar liaison group. Now, I don't know how much of a history it had, but it seemed to come out of nowhere. And um, NZDA sort of was quick to pump the brakes on a lot of people 
a lot of people's outrage and, and you know, I, I sit on Twitter and outrage is high there and I somehow follow a few Forest and Bird people and, you know, there was a few of those sort of eliminate everything tweets coming about and then there was, you know, if you if you quickly point out to them that, hey, we need more information, they were, like you say, if you have a little bit of empathy from where they're coming from and, uh, you know, don't attack somebody, you can have a discussion and, and find middle ground pretty fast. Um, yeah, do, you, yeah. do you think the, the response to the, the task situation was well handled or, you know, in response, not necessarily in terms of the initial intent, but in terms of the response, it was done, you know, done properly, do you think? Well, it was um, encouragingly positive. It was uh, great to see for the first time, at least in my uh, living memory, hunters come together about something um, and put our collective efforts in the right direction. Um, it was encouraging to, well, I think you mentioned NZDA. I don't think they get enough credit for what they did. They just basically wrote a blank check um, to the Tar Foundation and said, if you need to take them to court, take them to court, um, which was what put the brakes on initially. Uh, so I don't think the NZDA get enough credit for that, and nor do I don't think New Zealand hunters really understand that they are one of our only real political lobbying groups or voices that actually have a voice at the table that can make a difference. Um, the TAR liaison group, you know, it did, well, it existed, but it got, there was some quick movement and getting the right people in place to get that up and running. And then whoever came up with the idea of a GoFundMe page, that was a stroke of genius. I don't know who that was. Kudos to whoever that was. Um, and that generated... Oh, got up to 185 grand or something along those lines um, that made quite a big difference and in the background there was a lot of work going on uh, talking to members of the tourism industry or you know Ministry of Tourism um, as well as a number of other channels that I won't I won't mention here because probably a little bit controversial but a lot of things that were going on in the background particularly in the professional realm that were um, we're going to be working as fail safes if, if it did, you know, we're not talking about anything illegal or illicit, we're just talking about getting cunning about um, things like ammunition supply etc um, <laughs> um, so yeah, I was really um, I was really encouraged by the way that Kiwis uh, responded to it, or Kiwi hunters, and Australian hunters, give credit when credit's due, a lot of those guys who come to New Zealand to hunt you know, and they do it for free, essentially, were prepared to put their hand up and put some money where their mouth was to try and um, try and protect that resource. Um, the, I mean, there's always going to be the misguided stuff that goes along with, you know, with Kiwi hunters throwing their five cents worth into a, into a pot, and there was some, you know, pretty deeply concerning comments that I read on some of those pages and there were some really encouraging comments that I read on there but again you've got to sort of have empathy for everybody and their their hunting experience or their journey up to this point and where and why they feel the way they do and again there's a lot of negative um, baggage getting carried around because of doc for obvious reasons so I can sort of understand why that was the case but um, long term <sighs> I mean, hunting in New Zealand is an interesting thing. I think we have a great opportunity there to really, because animals are introduced and they do need controlling, and hunters, recreational hunters in particular, could be 
if well organized and put onto a proper management plan could basically do the job and I think that would be really positive but to get to that point to have some kind of management we've got a lot of big hurdles to get over and the biggest thing being legally speaking we need to change their status from pests to something else you know right now we're, we're trying to push for you know species of special interest um, Eugenie Sage has said that as long as she's in office that'll never happen um, all we can hope for is somewhere down the track we get someone who's got a little bit more logic and is a little bit more middle line rather being that extreme that they seriously look at that and the cost benefit of what that might look like um, but in saying that when you take away something that we've had forever which is the ability to hunt as much as we want when we want for free the trouble with management is that when we start managing our animals we're going to have to give up some of that and I my fear is that a large portion of the hunting community are going to throw their toys right out of the cot as soon as somebody tells them they can't do what they've been able to do as a kiwi for an extended period of time it hasn't always been like that you know, when they first introduced animals into New Zealand, you had to buy a license and a tag, and it was uh, a pastime that was very much reserved for the wealthy. Um, when they bred completely out of control, they obviously got rid of that system, and we've had it like that since probably the late 40s, early 50s, where they've been treated like a pest, and we've just had open slather get into them. Um, when you take that away from your average Kiwi hunter, my fear is there's going to be an uproar of you can't do that to me um, entitlement reaction. And I feel like that's going to undo any potential work that we've done. So it's, it's, it's going to be really interesting and it's part of the reason why we started the podcast is to try and get as many people starting to think about bigger, wider management and what that would look like in practice. You know, it's... Part of the reason we run Ultimate OE, we send you know thirty to forty young Kiwis overseas to hunt, you know, and be part of a different industry and a part of a different system to start to educate themselves on how it works around the world. So when they come home, they're better for it. Like we said, they've leveled up. They understand a little bit more about how it could work and what we have here as a resource, rather than just being solely invested in that Kiwi bubble. So. You know, the likes of the Fjord and Wapiti Foundation have done a fantastic job over the last decade. Um, they've proved, proven that that model does work. You know, hunters putting their hands up to maintain tracks, maintain huts. They are a big part of the Kia project down there. They do the, the legwork, put out traps. Like, huge amount of work goes into it, as well as taking out an agreed volume of deer out of that environment so that they are not having an overly detrimental effect on our native flora and fauna. So it's working down there. I'm sure it's this thorn in the side of Eugenie Sage in terms of, because it's a great, a shining example that it could work. You know, that kind of management could work. But I remember when Roy Sloan first started, you know, when, when those boys, Roy Sloan and his mates, started the Field and Wapiti Foundation, when they came out and said, we're going to make it a ballot and you just can't go down there and hunt and shoot whatever you want. There were people throwing their toys out of the cot that lived in Tauranga that was never ever going to get to go hunting down in Fjordland or had no intention to go down there, but they'd had something taken away. So, oh, you know, now what do you mean I just can't go down there whenever I want and shoot whatever I want? Oh, that's horrible, blah, blah, blah. And they stomped and kicked their feet for years until now, 
you know, they just put their heads down, bums up, got on with the job, believed in what they were doing and have done a fantastic job up to this point. Now people line up to shake his hand rather than, you know, spit on his feet, I guess. So it's a, it's, it's a great bastion of hope, I think, for New Zealand hunting. If that were to fall apart, then I would be, you know, devastated. And we have an opportunity with other species in New Zealand to do a similar thing. It won't be the same. One size doesn't fit all. But the idea of looking after a species, keeping their numbers down and managing them logically, I think it can be done and replicated all over the country. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm glad you brought up Field and Waipiti Foundation. I've always said if I ever win Lotto, they'll, they'll get a bit of money because they do a fantastic job. And um, I love the story you told on the podcast about, I think it was 10 years difference between going to hunting expos and the line for the Waipiti Foundation was a line of abuse to, like I said, a line of shakers there or his hand yeah, yeah. and get after it. And you also brought up the herds of special interest. Um, just a bit more on the education front. What what do you see now for the Game Animal Council? And, and I always, you know, like I said, I pick up a New Zealand Hunter magazine and, and the front pages were stories that didn't tell you much and just maybe got you excited that these things were out there. But the back pages, you know, articles on, you know, what's the age of this animal in the Field and Wapiti Foundation and then what the Game Animal Animal Council wants to do and wants to get underway. But as the sort of issues went on, it was sort of all, they're still saying the same thing, what's happening in, in Parliament? What do you see for them or, or currently they don't have a shit show? Yeah, I mean, I think they're up against it a little bit, particularly with the current government. There's no doubt about that. And in, in their defence, I think they've been up against it since they were formed. Um, they, you know, there was a lot of really talented people and and good New Zealand hunters that had the right intentions when they were appointed to the Game Animal Council but a lot of time and effort went into things that you know the the first thing on the agenda should have been figuring out how they were going to sustain themselves over a long period of time so I've got a little bit of a conspiracy theory that they were sort of set up and doomed to fail right from the word go if you look at other statutory bodies that have been set up around New Zealand, like the Land Access Commission, for example, you know when it was first formed, there were a lot of politicians put on that board, um, whose job was to secure the, you know, their, a revenue stream, some way to sustain that commission for the long period of time. When they set up the Game Animal Council, for whatever reason, that didn't happen. They just put a whole bunch of people on there that, you know on paper looked like they were came from all different parts of hunting you know they had the right intention and they all went in there with the best you know um, as I said intention but there was none of them was were focused on or specialized in getting that long-term foundation in place before they tried to do a whole bunch of stuff so what we've seen is um, and I mean, I say all this with a grain of salt. I mean, this is from me looking in from the outside. I might be totally wrong. Um, I just want to make it very clear that I respect all the guys that have given up their time and, and put effort into the Game Animal Council. And I know there's been a shitload of work going in the background, but, you know, it, it's a hard thing. When it was formed, I remember thinking, yes, finally we've got this. This is what we need. You know, perfect. I can't believe that happened. And then nothing happened. And, just out of interest, every year, you know, this time, 25 guys, all passionate hunters from New Zealand, sitting down in front of us at the Ultimate OE training, training. And I said, put your hand up if you've heard about the Game Animal Council. Out of 25, there's about three of them put their hands up. 
and I said, put your hand up if you know what the Game Animal Council does. And one guy sort of half kept his hand up, but sort of did the old, uh, I don't know. So everything aside, I think that's probably one of their biggest shortfall is that they are designed to represent the hunting sector in New Zealand. And a big part of that hunting sector is recreational hunters. And I think that they, unless you read the back page of one specific hunting magazine with no pictures, it's just one page, unless you knew what the Game Animal Council was going into that and are you know, dedicated enough to buy that specific magazine and read that back page, that's about all of the communication they've had with recreational hunters since they were formed. Right? So the people who voted, you know, and it came through Peter Dunn and the dissolving of his outdoor recreation party and then he got into wherever it happened. I don't know, I'm not big on politics, but then it was hunters jumping up and down and saying, we want some representation. That was the gift, that was the result of us doing all that campaigning and that hard work. And then since then, we haven't heard much about them. You know, and there was a lot of people when that tar thing blew up, it was like, oh, okay, who's the Game Animal Council? They're going to come and fix it, right? And that was the first bit of publicity that had to the general hunting public since they were formed, which to me, again, it's a, you look at who's on that board and those guys are all really good at what they do individually, but none of them, you know, we're experts in communicating with the 160-odd thousand hunters that we have in New Zealand. Yeah. Mate, something, something I've, I've noticed, you know, being away from New Zealand and coming back, I've watched two hunting shows um, this week, and, you know, uh, we're based in Pukekohe and I've been downtown and there's three hunting shops. <laughs> what What do you think is you know, extra special about New Zealand that even a, a semi-rural part of New Zealand still has that connection to hunting. Now, sure enough here, there's probably a bigger connection with duck shooting and, you know, you go to the likes of the Coromandel and, and even into Auckland and, it, and it's into fishing, but, um, you know, you get to the likes of Waikato or Kokoro and Tunisia and Southland, you know, and, and it's it's in the blood. Um, one of the challenges, you know, I'm an optometrist, and one of the challenges we have is urbanisation of the population in we're seeing the same thing when it comes to hunting and agriculture. How, how have you seen that? And so whereabouts are you from? Well, I'm, I grew up in Palmerston North. Um, I was lucky my old man uh, owned and bought and sold a number of different big farms when I was growing up. So I got to sort of hunt. Um, we had a big place up the end of the Waitotra Valley and we've always had... Um, uh, a decent size in the tower, uh, backing into the Tauruas. Um, so my hunting was sort of uh, always sort of focused around there. I mean, I, I guess a better example is the dichotomy between, you know, I live in the centre of Vancouver. I live in a place called Kitsilano. It's where Lululemon was born. It is about as um, yogury as you can imagine. Um, so I come, I am living in a place where most of the people here are two, three generations separated from anything rural, mm-hmm. right, right? So we are further here where I am living now in the timeline than, say, New Zealand is right now. So in New Zealand, the reason why we still have a lot of hunters and a lot of people who at least know a hunter is because we are still, you know, a, a big portion of our GDP comes from from farming in some which way or form, which is the outdoors and then naturally hunting. And in New Zealand, I guess, pest control is a is a is is always going to be a part of that. So we don't have that urbanised separation in terms of 
of hunting as say other parts of the world do so vancouver seattle you know name a big city in the u.s la that you know they're two or three generations now separated from hunting so that's where you get this hipster hunter kind of um, phenomenon coming from is because people have been separated for a number of generations they've never been around they've never known a hunter never heard anything about hunting all they get is the propaganda that's put on television you know hunters always the bad guys in the movies you know they're always um they're always shown as villains or as evil or a you know redneck dumbass that just drinks cans and doesn't know what the hell they're talking about that's for most people in north america probably most people around the world that's the image of hunters that has been fed to them since they were first started watching tv so that's a total exposure to it so if somebody tells you that big bad trophy hunter went and did this then they 100 percent believe it and they've got zero reason to doubt it hmm. okay so that hipster hunter thing has been fueled largely by this long form format of podcasting where they can listen to a guy like joe rogan or cameron haynes or steve ranella talk articulately about hunting why they hunt and the benefits both mentally physically and from a conservation point of view that make total sense that are 100 percent correct where smart people who live in urban centers are suddenly going whoa that's not exactly what i thought it was going to be that's different maybe i should be involved in it or that sounds like something i want to at least know more about or even try myself so new zealand again we're in a in a unique situation where the the pendulum hasn't swung as far as it has in other parts of the world like we still have a much more valid social license to be a hunter and we should make the most of that because that social license isn't a right it's something that is um that can be taken away from you if you let that separation between hunter and non-hunter get too wide at some point if that void gets too big and the majority of the population don't understand hunting don't know anyone that hunts don't agree with hunting don't know anything about it if that gets too wide when it comes down to a vote should there be hunting yes or no and that's probably a little bit of a hard line example but something that relates to hunting like should we manage a tar species for you know hunting on a trophy population if the general public vote on that and they don't understand what the hell they're talking about their vote's going to be no because of the connotations that go with trophy hunting because of the connotations that go with being a hunter so as hunters we need to be very careful that when we you know that we promote hunting in a positive light and an accurate light and don't let our egos get out of control don't you know push non-hunters away and dismiss them we need to better ed educate them and help them understand why we do what we do and the benefits of what we can do and how we can benefit in new zealand's case the environment reducing numbers of pests and managing our game animals in a way that's good for everybody mm. You spoke there about social license and, and that's something that's come into the agriculture sector. Um, while living in the Waikato, they were starting up their water plan change and you know, the agriculture sector is quick to bounce on Auckland that, hey, those beaches don't look too nice after a few effluent leaks either. But um, social license, even for farming, has, has come into question. You know, what do you have to do in, in terms of, you know, to manage a, a sector of land? And, and it comes, like you said, does it... does 
social license for hunting mean that you have to win a contract to go and cull a certain amount of animals for dock for the management of birds and, and forest? Or does it mean that, you know, as hunters we buy a tag, we report on what we've done, um, you know, outfitters have to maintain a certain level of bush and bird, you know, have a certain level of trap lines, which, you know, a lot of people don't realise that they do. Um, there's a number of ways to do it, I think. I mean, I, I don't I don't think New Zealand should go into a, a full-on tag system. I, I think that's a little bit too extreme. Um, I mean, the idea of paying an annual fee or a licence fee to hunt in, in New Zealand um, might sound a bit scary to people, but at the end of the day, that could generate quite a good schwack of, um, of revenue to then put back into management and maintaining that system. The trouble with any kind of management is if you're going to put restrictions in place, then you actually have to um, pay for and maintain some kind of enforcement, which costs money, um, and that would scare the shit out of most Kiwi hunters to think that they could get, you know, someone could write them a ticket for not doing it properly, being in the wrong place at the wrong time. Um, so another way that they do it really effectively here in North America is every part of every gun, ammunition, sporting good, outdoor sporting good sold in the United States, um, I think it's one and a half or two percent of that goes directly back into conservation. So it's a it was a a tax that hunters voted for and said, look, we want that to be part of, you know, our um you know what we do so if you buy hunting equipment or outdoors equipment or fishing equipment in the states two percent of that goes directly back into conservation so that's another way that you can sort of passively um passively help with that conservation effort but in order to do that in new zealand we would have to have an agreed management plan on how that was then deployed because the first thing that most new zealand hunters and probably rightly so they say well i'm not going to pay you know, a tax that's going to go straight to dock and then they're just going to pour that into 1080 and, you know, blow out the area that I want to go hunting in. You know, that's going to be the knee-jerk reaction of 99% of hunters and I can sort of see where they're coming from because right now that they don't have any kind of access to, contribution to, or ability to um, affect that management plan in any way. And as long as dock stay hardline on the fact that all introduced animals are pests, and will be treated as such and eliminated if possible, then we're never going to get to a point of that. So how it works in New Zealand, I don't know. I think the first step is, is certainly education and you know getting hunters a, a little bit more open to the fact that some form of management plan would benefit us greatly. B is maintaining a good relationship with and making sure we educate non-hunters about why we do what we do. And part of that is portraying a positive image of a hunter in the, in the New Zealand media. So more stories about the local hunting club, you know, going out and doing a trap line or the local hunting club turning up and planting 500 native trees in an area or that kind of positive community labor injection as a hunter, as a hunting group. I think can really help our image and we'll start the average non-hunter in Aucklander um, relating positive stories about hunters and how much we love the environment and love the animals that we hunt and want to maintain that and look after everything, love our native birds, all of that kind of stuff. The more stories that promote that kind of hunter will help us in the long run when there is ever a decision 
coming down to politically speaking should we stop this or should we make this decision which will negatively affect hunters so you know the hardliners like to maintain the image that hunters are redneck dumb you know honky tonk don't pay any attention you know aren't that smart just do it to kill things blood sport all that stuff that's maybe applies to one or two percent of the entire hunting population they love to promote that image and they'll continue to promote that image because it's an easy one to attack us from and it makes perfect sense and we don't do ourselves any favors because the first thing we do is post a grip and grin on facebook with a you know blood coming out of an animal's nose tongue hanging out it doesn't look good so it's easy for people to believe that mm. yeah i loved uh, last night on hunters club tim um, who you could mistake him for a for a back back blocks you know honky dump but absolutely <laughs> he's always a wee bit honky dump chases pigs um, losing it over some kiwis and um you know it just shows that some of the places that us hunters love love to explore you spoke about um field and Wapiti foundation in, in the fear um you know you get out into into those high country rivers and these things are squealing at you and it's no good for trying to sneak up on animals but it's an amazing sight to see that it's not just on a I don't know, $50 note or something. It's, it's a real thing and it's out there. And, and you know, in the case of fuel and property, it's, it's something that hunters are doing to bring, bring something back and make it, make it populous. I mean, can, can you imagine a, a world or a situation where every time Doc or Forest and Bird or any community group had a, a working bee or a, a volunteer scenario where they were trying to, you know, reduce predator numbers trap rats whatever it might be if there was you know every time they did that 50 good-natured hard-working hunters from new zealand turned up and bolstered those ranks and just ripped into it if we did that everywhere it would change our image very very quickly you know and most of us have good values we're all good hard-working kiwis and by nature we don't like confrontation so as long as as a hunter nobody's dicking with my patch and I can still out and do what I do on my own and not have to worry about anyone else that's fine but the reality is we need to maintain that social license so we need to maintain our image so if we started doing that you know and that's again part of the reason why we started the educated hunter podcast is we hope to build a community around us that we can say okay guys there's a you know we're going to put some stoke traps in valley x in this area this weekend if you've got a spare day or two come down and give us a hand if we could start rallying troops like that it would be fantastic and i think it would be a huge tick in the positive column for the image of hunters and as a result long term work in our favor yeah you see good nature there um i'll have a quick shout out to alex mccall from squawk squad that good nature trap is bloody awesome you know it, it, <laughs> you know if we could yeah, yeah. if we could you know come up with a couple of hundred to, to install a few of those along the place. You know, I think they only need... Wouldn't that be great? Only need checked every six months. <laughs> you know, and it, it's a funny thing, like, you look at that, give a little page, 185 grand in less than a week, right? You know, imagine if we could generate that kind of money around, and you know, a hunter-based conservation effort in New Zealand and then deploy it, you know, smartly around the country. You know, 185 grand buys a shitload of dead rats particularly if we're donating our time for free, which is the most expensive thing. Uh, um, so let's, let's go into this, your business. How did it start? You said you were you know, hunting for survival and that 
and we didn't crush it. <laughs> I was in Dunedin. I don't know if it was for survival. It was more of a self-imposed. If we didn't catch it or shoot it, we didn't get to eat it. So um, it was more of a self-imposed budgeting measure to increase the volume of booze we could buy, to be fair. Um, but <laughs> um, How does the business come out of that? Oh, right. Uh, it, it, it came a bit later, to be fair. So after that, I got into the guiding side of things, um, was internationally based. Um, I I helped out on a hunt for a guy called Jim Shockey in New Zealand in my first year as a guide. So just carried a backpack, volunteered my time because um, my boss at the time told me it was a good opportunity. Um, became very good friends with his son, um, a guy called Brandon Shockey. Uh, sort of progressed through the industry on my own accord for a couple of years um, guiding in New Zealand and then in my off season I was going to Canada I, I, I did some time in northern Quebec guiding for Caribou and then my next season I went and wrangled in northern BC um, and then eventually guided in northern BC um, as a result of that experience uh, and then I went on to actually run camera for a number of years initially um, the cameraman stuff was partly a way to extend my visa in Canada but also me and Bran had become quite good mates and there was a new TV show starting so the two of us sort of started at the same time working on that which sort of saw me um, as Jim Shockey's sort of um, well there was two of us as me and another guy called Todd Bissenden who were his full-time cameraman at the time so I worked Oh, I was sort of anywhere between 280 and 300 days a year as a cameraman on the road hunting all around the world. Uh, so I did that for, yeah, like I say, four and a half, five years, which was a huge amount of experience and opportunity in a, a very short period of time. Um, I went all over the place, uh, all over Africa, Asia, um, Europe, South Pacific, um, hunting. And it gave me the opportunity to be involved in different hunting outfits and, and be guided by a huge number of different guides around the world, um, which sort of cumulated into a whole bunch of experience that um, A, may be better as a hunting guide, but also gave me a, a, a more of a global perspective of, of, of what hunting was um, worldwide as an industry. So once I was essentially burnt out of that, it's not an easy pace to sustain. It was the the difficult question of how you take that experience and turn that into something that, you know, turn it into a business. Um, and one thing that both me and my business partner, Curran Island, felt very strongly about was the idea of giving that opportunity to other young Kiwis, essentially. So how can we... Um, make this a more accessible option for young Kiwis in New Zealand? And the answer was, well, what came out of that was Ultimate OE, where we could, at scale, take young Kiwis, give them the tools they needed to hit the ground running um, when they arrived in Canada, and then give them the opportunity to you know, experience that part of the world, that kind of hunting um, and give them the opportunity for that kind of personal growth and progression, which would inevitably lead to, you know, a number of different doors being opened for them all over the world. Um, and that's and that's sort of what we threw our weight behind is is 
trying to get guys, recruit guys, mentor guys into that program and, and give them that sort of push in the right direction. And and the the result of that is coming out the other end, we get a lot of um, gratification, um, enjoyment out of seeing those young men and women, um, like I said, level up in a number of different ways, not just in the hunting arena, but just in terms of who they are as a, as a human being. Nice. On, on the flip side, um, you know, going back to Joe Rogan, you hear him talk about how, you know, New Zealand's is hunting Mecca, but it's all, a lot of it's behind a fence post. Um, <laughs> we, you know, what, what can we as a country do better to, to I don't know, get rid of that perception and also better portray the reality of how big that property is behind a fence post? Um, and like, you know, there's the Shot Expo on in, in Auckland this weekend that's going to, you know, highlight what's what's behind the New Zealand industry. But then you look at things like, you know, the Western Conference over in the States and, you know, the the outfitters are over there and that's all the States are seeing. What, what can we as hunters do better to, to get out the message that, you know, New Zealand is actually this free-range, wild, uninhabited place? <laughs> I saw a great map of New Zealand of it, where people don't live and it's like the whole country's in green. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, it's an interesting can of worms, that one, to be honest with you. Um, how to unpack it, I'm not quite sure. Uh, the New Zealand hunting industry, internationally speaking, you're right, 100%. Guys like Joe Rogan and the guys he hangs around with uh, are of the perception that you know hunting in New Zealand is largely high fence. And what's been marketed to them since the late 70s, early 80s, and what they've seen, and then what all of their peers and friends and acquaintances and other hunters has have experienced in New Zealand um, right up to this date is estate hunting or high fence hunting. So that, wrongly or rightly, is the perception of New Zealand hunting internationally right now. Be careful what you wish for, because... When people start to figure out that our hunting is free, um, when people start to figure out they don't need to pay that amount of money to hunt on public land in New Zealand, like we have no restrictions. So if they bring a bow and arrow, they can go and shoot as many animals on public land as they want for free. Okay, so you say how do we increase the perception or how do we increase the knowledge that New Zealand is a free-range hunting mecca. Um, I think we have to be very careful of how we do that, to be honest with you. Um, I think it's probably going to end up being the catalyst for change in New Zealand. When that floodgate opens, and it's already starting to happen, you've got guys like Adam Greentree who innocently will post something like, you should come and hunt in New Zealand, it's totally free, you can do it for free, You know, here's a good place to go hunt chamois with your bow. To his 300,000 Instagram followers. I think Nick you know, might have taken his tar with him to this day. Like, I tell you what, when that floodgate opens, Kiwi hunters are going to go to their little honey hole and they're going to turn up and there's going to be five, six, ten American hunters there. It's already starting to happen with Aussies. But when that floodgate opens, like suddenly New Zealand's going to be like, hey, this is our stuff. You can't come over here and do it. And the only way to stop them is to put in some kind of regulation in terms of a license or they have to have a guide. With regulation comes management. With management becomes a reduced amount of freedom. I think that that 
potentially could be the catalyst that gets your average Kiwi hunter to stand up and go, hey, we need to do something here because we've got all these people coming to New Zealand essentially hunting for free and I'm missing out. And it's it's going to be using our own sense of entitlement as hunters in New Zealand to push that change when we get pissed off with people just turning up and shooting what they want for free. So how we change that perception, I think it's going to change by nature anyway. We live in a world where information is becoming more and more readily available. Um, I think that the animals in New Zealand are hugely undervalued like massively undervalued and that even goes for the guys that are doing high fence stuff like the fact that you can buy a, a five day tar hunt you know free range in New Zealand for four and a half five grand US is a joke to me I think that is so heavily undervalued it, it makes me sick when you compare it to everything else in the world but at the same time I understand the function of why it is so cheap you know an Australian guy is not going to pay any more than four and a half thousand for a guided hunt knowing that he could come and actually hunt the same place for free if he wanted to so because our government has no value for animals and let's face it as a result as kiwis we don't put a lot of value on our animals either it means that internationally and what we can sell them for there's not very much value on them either so it's a it's a catch-22 like a tar hunt in nepal will run you thirty-five thousand dollars us starting price mm. You can come and do it for free in New Zealand, or you can go for a, with an outfitter who specialises in Australians or and free range stuff, and pay four and a half, five thousand US dollars, and and get it done, and that's relatively cheap. So, it, <laughs> again, it's it's an interesting can of worms, and all of these threads will will have to come together, and there's going to be a tipping point somewhere. But I think there's a genuine lack of understanding and knowledge when it comes to your average recreational kiwi hunter and what the professional industry looks like in New Zealand and around the world like there's a huge amount of disconnect between those two things you know the the old idea of either oh, Americans come to New Zealand and shoot these high fence stags and pay hundreds of thousands of dollars and blah 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 you couldn't get any easier way to make money um, is not really correct to be fair um, it's a I think, well, I, I might be wrong. The average recreational hunter in New Zealand may have a good understanding for the professional industry, but my my limited experience in the field would suggest otherwise. Yeah, and I know back to my passion for the deer industry, um, the guys in Waikato just sold a pretty good genetic stag, but that was some of his comments, is that if, if you're wanting to sell to the game industry, you need to be bloody good or else you're wasting your time because... Like I say, in order to charge that, the, the standard's gone up and up and up and up and up and up. I helped him cut, cut some antler one day and he's just like, oh, my span's not big enough. You know, we don't have enough points. We don't have enough leads. You know, these are worthless. And I was looking at it going, that's, that's incredible. But, you know. Well, it's, it's partly that, but it's, it's also the fact that there is a lot of competition in that estate, New Zealand estate hunting stuff. And, I mean, some of my really good friends in the industry – you know, run outfits in New Zealand and they're primarily estate hunting stuff. Um, and it's, it's, I've got nothing against it whatsoever, but it's the old New Zealand mentality, like the old idea that you can bang a fence up with some big deer in there and people will come and pay shitloads to hunt them. The, the New Zealand market, in my opinion, is pretty flooded right now with competition. And it's, it's not hard to go to any one of those hunting shows in the US and you walk around and there's, you know, 30, 35 different New Zealand outfitters 
and people are not stupid. They just walk around and say, well, this guy's going to give me that for that much. And then the next guy will knock this amount off the price, this amount of price, and it just gets cheaper and cheaper. And people who are just starting in the industry, you know, they really struggle to, to get clients. Like most people who go to hunt in New Zealand, particularly the estate stuff, get referred to from a friend who's already hunted in New Zealand and have an established relationship with an outfitter in New Zealand who've been up and running for 20, 25 years. And that's where most of the business goes. So as a, a new outfitter in New Zealand trying to sell, you know, estate or high fence hunts, it, it can be, I can see it being quite challenging. Again, I'm not in the industry. I don't know. When we go to those shows, we have the ability to walk around and chat to everybody because we're not trying to sell anything. We're just there to visit with our employers and, you know, say good day to everybody so for us it's it's easy to sit on the fence and make these kind of statements so i don't know um but it's hard to not think that it must be getting harder because you know it's becoming more well known that all those high fence stags you know where they come from all that kind of stuff within the industry and it's putting a lot of people off going to hunt in new zealand because they their perception is, is they have to do it high fence and b there's a lot more outfitters than there were 10 years ago and circling back to the guys <clears throat> that you've trained up that come back to New Zealand and perhaps this, you know, legislation that if you want to come here, you need a guide. Where do you think the, the wild idea is? And, and there's a couple of guys out on the market that have this sort of entry-level father-son hunting mode. Do you think that they might be in with an opportunity should that sort of stuff come up? Yeah, there's a lack of... Um... Oliver Walker, uh, Ollie Walker Cudby is his name. He's one of our old boys, went through the program. Um, he is now operating down there and um, off the coast in Wairapa. Uh, he does, you know, some or well, quite a bit of the meat hunting, father hunting, father son hunting stuff. He's off to the Shot Expo this weekend. If you're in Auckland and you want to go and have a chat to a good, honest bloke who will take you hunting, Ollie's your man. Uh, there are more and more of them popping up around the country. I think that I think there is a real opportunity in free range based private land hunting um, because you can. When I say private hunting, I mean on private land um, because you can control, well, you can manage it. Right, it comes back to management. You can, you know, shoot the right animals at the right time. You can monitor, monitor population. You can monitor trophy quality. And you can maintain, you know, a good level all around. I think there's a real future in that. Um, and yeah, maybe some of those guys will, you know, their businesses could potentially grow. Um, but it's hard to market that to an international audience, particularly from the US, who are used to seeing 384 inch, 400 inch stags as a minimum. Um, they're used to their buddies coming to New Zealand shooting five, six animals in five days all of a massive trophy quality, um, trying to convince them that they have to slog it out on the side of a mountain for seven days to shoot a 12-point red, you know, 12-pointer red stag, it's a hard sell. Um, and again, because there's no value, you know, the, the guys that are doing that are having to sell those hunts for, I don't even know how they make money, to be honest with you. Like it's once you've got your overheads and fuel and licenses and your dock concession and your, you know, your time on the mountain or your marketing, your insurance, your health and safety. Once you put all that into it, I, I mean, I don't know how those guys who are doing legitimate free range hunts, even on private land at the price that they sell it for can make money. 
Yeah, I've been following Ollie and, <clears throat> and the guys at Mitsunawa and, you know, from a public land perspective, you know, he's done a great job of, of um, shaping what he wants out of, out of the animals, but at the same time, you know, we're, we do cover things. And <laughs> yeah. I mean, Ollie's not hunting public land. That's why he's hunting private land. So it, it means he can control what gets taken off there every day and he can you know he's close enough to wellington that he can market those father-son meat hunts and make a living out of it so for him you know he's probably a lot more profitable than doing it on public land because he can turn over the animals there's a good population there he controls that whole area so you know he can tick over those you know he has his trophy hunts over the raw then he'll tick into you know cow hunts and then meat hunts and then in the spring so he can fill in a good portion of his year doing hunts that last one or two days but as soon as you take a one or two day hunt and have to turn it into a you know five six seven eight day hunt to get one animal then the economics of it change a lot you know he controls he owns the accommodation he owns the the vehicles he you know does most of the guiding himself so i'm sure he's got a you know he'll be ramping up a nice little business there but you know, if I were going to say, right, I'm going to start a free range outfit and take guys hunting on the wilderness estate to, you know, shoot tar, uh, I don't know, man. It, it, it could be a, a tough one. I mean, it's something that Curran and I, my business partner, talk about a lot. Um, we've certainly been looking at the, the state of New Zealand hunting um, and from a professional point of view and, and, and really trying to tease out you know where the opportunities lie if they do exist in New Zealand because um, like I said guiding to me and, and Curran and a lot of the guys that we've sent to Canada who have come back it becomes a bit of a drug like we're addicted to it we love doing it but it's really hard to um, to get back into the industry without investing a whole bunch of time away from home or sort of you know living in poverty so we've really spent some time and effort in the last sort of six months analyzing that industry and, and trying to figure out where there are some opportunities um i can't talk too much about what we're, we're looking at right now but it's a it's certainly a work in progress that one day hopefully we can use that to in, at least increase the perceived value of what we have in new zealand in terms of the animals and and the quality of the experiences we can offer mm. yeah just on that i at the start of it, I was sort of thinking back to when um, my mate and I attacked the Blue River after the um, for the roar with one of the Wanaka blocks. And, you know, unfortunately for us, there's a helicopter operator in the Makarora, which does a good job through February there. And But having now watched a few of those hunting shows and seen the areas that they go to, we sort of attacked the valley floor and looked up at the hills and thought, ah, oh, you know, that that might not be for us. And we're in the same situation. We've been, been around hunting people, you know, from Southland, um, you know, done rabbit shooting around around properties and things like that. But when it came to actually, well, how do you attack that, that cliffside? Having someone with that little bit of experience, a little bit of coaching, a little bit of push to, like you say, realise realize a goal might have made all the difference. And, you know, I was watching NZ Hunter the other night and it just came up across the little basin and all of a sudden there's some animals, you know, and... and yeah. I look back at that hunt and go, maybe that was all it took is a little bit of balls, a little bit of somebody to say, you know, this is how you... Yeah, if there's one bit of advice I can give you, unless it's early spring, I'd probably get out of the river basin. <laughs> <laughs> a little bit of altitude, never hurt anyone. Is a, um, 
I could probably count on one hand the number of times in my guiding career and professional career that I regret getting some altitude and some perspective on what you're looking at. You will invariably find animals where you can't see them from the easy spots. Um, and New Zealand's no, no different. So, yeah, I mean, there are more deer in New Zealand now on public land than they have been for a very long time i don't think anyone will contest that it's they've been steadily growing and it fluctuates depending on what the wild venison price is doing and how hard the waro guys are working um and i know waro is a big sort of topic amongst new zealand hunters it always has been since the boom days of the 60s um or 50s and 60s 70s even into the 80s um i'll rephrase that helicopters really started towards the end of the 80s um, and 90s so and that sort of gave rise to the venison industry as you probably know so there's always been this sort of at loggerheads with recreational hunters and helicopter pilots and helicopter hunting and I think it's kind of like the dock scenario like there's a lot of baggage there and I, I get why people are very much anti-waro and it breaks your heart and I've been in this situation a couple of times particularly as a young fellow when I was first sort of going out on some bigger wilderness hunts is nothing worse than sneaking up a, a spur or up a river valley first thing in the morning um, and 100 metres before you get to the clearing a chopper comes over your head and you know smokes the five deer that were standing on the clearing right there's nothing quite like that it breaks your heart and it's i understand why there are a number of stories like that that you know from the average recreational hunter if you're not a recreational hunter in new zealand unless you've had your heart broken by a war operator that's just a fact of life i can see why there's a bit of a rub but at the same time waro without it um we would be in a lot of trouble because the reality is that recreational hunters can't keep the animal numbers down enough um, to, you know, stop Doc having to go in there and do just extermination missions. So, yes, and the trouble is with Waro, there's no management, like no long-term management. The venison price is higher, the boys are in the air and they're shooting a shitload of deer. The venison price comes down, they're not in the air, the deer population builds back up again and that's you know our whole management plan using waro and helicopters is based on the international wild venison price so there's no you know there's no if rhyme or reason to it and you can't blame the guys for shooting big bodied animals i.e stags because that's their bread and butter like they're doing it for a living they're not doing it for fun so it's a it's a it's an interesting sort of kettle of um fish really because we 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 love to hate as hunters love to hate warrior guys but at the same time we most of us kind of know that, that especially those who do enough hunting that we we actually really need them otherwise we'd be up shit creek yeah and back, back to the attitude <laughs> yeah yeah well that's the thing and i mean you know there are again to reiterate there's a shitload of deer on public land in new zealand at the moment so I mean, there's no real excuse for not being able to go out and find one. But um, it's that whole giving up some of our, you know, everything's free, do it at any time liberties for hunting in New Zealand and substituting that with a bit of management um, could work better for us long term. Absolutely, mate. Now I know we're on a time frame and we've probably nearly had it. Yeah, I'm supposed to be at a, at a Canucks hockey game and... and an hour and I've got to meet my girlfriend for dinner so I better not be too late I'll be in trouble yeah so where, where do people find you in the podcast in Kieran 
Okay, you can find the podcast at The Educated Hunter. Um, we're on iTunes, Spotify, and um, the Google one, whatever that is. Google Play. So we're on those three platforms. Uh, you can also go to our website, which is theeducatedhunter.com, um, and you can download the episodes directly off there or listen to them on there. Um, in terms of finding Curran and myself, where I'm at Matt Gibson NZ um, on Instagram, and Curran is just an outdoor guy on Instagram. So you can find us there. If you jump on to. Um, the Educated Hunter website. There's a lot of different links for connecting with us in different ways, emails and all that kind of stuff. And then in terms of Ultimate OE, it's ultimateoe.co.nz. Um, you can find all the details there. And um, If you're interested in going to Canada or Scotland to work in the hunting industry, get paid to do it, um, give us a yell. Lovely. And for your guys, I'm just at Stag Vision on, on Instagram and uh, the Stag Roars through Anchors on most platforms. Um, but yeah, iTunes and Google Play and Spotify are often handy. And then um, awesome, awesome. if you want to read about a great walk with guns in the Blue River, um, stagrine.com is where I have a blog. Nice, <laughs> nice. Nice. I didn't know you had a blog. I'll have a read. Yeah, it sometimes hurts, especially when we get to our age. I'm just back in the gym just recently. I've got a hunt with Curran and at the end of March and I'm, uh, I've been on a good paddock for a few months. So it's been a little bit of a uh, baptism of fire. It sucks. Fitness used to be a byproduct of my job. Now it's a, an effort. I spend most of my time staring at one of these bloody things. Nice. What would you like to leave um, the New Zealand hunter or, or public person with uh, there, Matt? Uh, just have a bit of empathy for everybody, really. I know it sounds a bit cheesy, but it's got a lot of different applications. You know, you know, understand where different people are are at with their hunting journey and, and where they've sort of grown up and get their information from. And then as a hunter, I think it's a responsibility of all of us to to spread the good word, for lack of a better term, and, and talk to non-hunters and, and help them understand the motivation behind what we do and uh, our love for the environment and the animals that we hunt and um, putting good, clean protein on a table. Absolutely, mate. Right, yeah, we'll let you go and Go to the Canucks and yeah, mate. Cheers. They're playing like shit. It's like it's like supporting the New Zealand Warriors, but the Canadian version. Oh, they'll get up and beat the best team in the competition one day, and the next day they'll lose to the bottom of the table. It's frustrating. As a Southland Stags fan, I can relate. Uh... <laughs> yeah, exactly. All right, mate. It was good talking to you, Ryan. G'day. Thanks for listening to the Educated Hunter podcast. There are a number of ways you can connect with myself, Matthew Gibson, or my partner in crime, Curran Island, at The Educated Hunter. And the hub for all of this is our website, theeducatedhunter.com. Our Instagram page is at theeducatedhunter. Our website also has a spot where you can sign up for our newsletter that comes once every two weeks and is full of relevant information about hunting in New Zealand and around the world. And lastly, you can search out any of the episodes that we've done in the past and find the show notes on that episode other than that thanks very much for listening and i hope you're having a good day wherever you are and your next hunting adventure is not too far away